Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, I'm delighted to have as my guest, Michael Puck, who is the senior partner to the HCM Advisory Group at Kronos. Michael, welcome. Marcus, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Wonderful to have you. Would you mind giving the audience 60 seconds on your background and uh, how you got here? Absolutely. The first 30 years of my life I spent in Germany and my first big career decision I had at the age of 20, it was between military and studying arts. So on the opposite sides of the continuum, since Germany at the time had a draft military and I had to go to the military anyway, I decided to join the Air Force for 12 years. <laughs> I became an officer in the process. I was an air traffic controller with missiles is probably the best description. And um, I learned some incredible leadership lessons while being with the, the Air Force, which I used later on um, during my HR time. Some of the, and I'll just go very briefly in that, but some of the ground rules that I've learned is that troops come always first. And as officers, we were required to let the groups, the troops eat before we were able to eat ourselves. And I think there's a lesson for today's corporate world right there. Now, from the military, I transitioned into aerospace and defense. I spent 18 years with a British company by the name of BAE Systems. And I had various roles in HR in Germany, in the UK, and in the US. Now, that was from launching HR from scratch and some functions and also directing strategy on the enterprise level for 45,000 employees. Now, I'm an economist by training and an entrepreneur by spirit. And I've always looked at HR as a profit center more so than a cost center. For the last six years, I've been focusing on creating employee-centric environments and really helping companies to get a strategy in place that makes it possible for them to drive business outcomes. And I think the, the theme throughout my career of, of 38 years is best expressed by Peter Drucker, who once said, the only real difference between one organization and another is the performance of its people. Okay, so on that note, what do you find are the foremost common questions that people ask you about how to get the top performance out of people? I think that's a great question, Marcus. And probably the question I get most frequently is specific to engagement and uh, how to in increase employee engagement. Now, so, Michael, can I stop you there? Can you define what you mean by engagement? Because yes, absolutely. Um, I, I would have. We hear it bandied around a lot, but I don't think anyone's really defined it. I can do actually one better than that. I can tell you engagement cannot be fixed because engagement is a symptom and not a cause. And so that's where I see many companies really, really struggle because um, the Gallup Institute, just to give you an example, they've been measuring, studying, and really analyzing employee engagement for decades. And companies have focused on measuring and, and putting surveys out and initiatives. And engagement hasn't changed. It is basically still two-thirds of the population is either disengaged or actively disengaged. So I'm just flabbergasted by the fact that after two decades of measuring and no improvements, that we're still trying to fix engagement. So there is 
obviously engagement is a symptom, but there are underlying causes that companies need to focus on. And, and Marcus, let me go a little deeper on that. Some of the symptoms that we're hearing is low commitment, low engagement, high attrition, poor customer service, low productivity, low quality. The list is a mile long and companies focus on that level. Instead, they need to look, meaning if you visualize an iceberg and the six things I just mentioned is the piece of the iceberg that you can see above the waterline. You need to look underneath the waterline to see what's really causing all of that. Let me give you a few examples. A toxic culture, a bad manager, no recognition, no work-life balance, no growth opportunity. So those were five. And I've actually found that there is a list of 30 of those variables, value currencies, as I call them. And if they are in place, if companies have created frameworks to enable these, then you see high engagement. So that hopefully gives you somewhat of a definition of how I'm looking at engagement. Again, I'd never heard it said before that engagement is a symptom, not the cause, but I think that's a fabulous insight because if you try and fix a symptom, you're fixing the wrong end of the problem and the the problem will not go away. So we're talking about engagement levels of uh, what, if we extrapolate the data the other way around, what was it, about 8.6%, something like that? 8.6% for, for what, sorry? For employees who are actively engaged. It is a very, very small percentage. I think what we normally see is around a third of the population is engaged or actively engaged. But if you look at only actively engaged, it's around 10%. That's a frightening thought when you consider how much time and how much, how, what a huge proportion of people's lives are spent in the work environment befuddles the mind that uh, employers can think that that's somehow acceptable. Let me give you a visual to really drive this home. And I'm using that in presentations quite a bit. Think of a boat and you have 10 individuals in that boat, each a paddle in hand. So if you look at the percentages that Gallup seems to be confirming year after year, you have three individuals that have paddle in hand and putting the paddle in the water, trying to move the boat forward. Then you have five individuals in the center of the boat that basically are along for the ride, but there's no paddling going on. You know, they're just sitting in the boat. They're not doing anything to make you go backwards, but they certainly don't move you in the right direction. And then you have two individuals out of the 10 that use their paddles in order to poke holes in the boat and trying to make you sink. (laughs) <laughs> and that is today's workforce. Okay. So given that we know that <laughs> engagement is a byproduct of things like toxic culture, poor management, and so on, if you were to look at the three questions that people should ask about employee engagement, but they don't, what are they? Yeah, I think that's a great question what they should ask, but three questions probably wouldn't unearth all of it, to be quite honest. Well, you've um, got us, we've got an hour, so feel free. <laughs> all right, very good. So I think one of the questions that companies should ask is, and that goes definitely in the right direction, is how can I give employees more of what they want? But what I find and what I've seen most frequently, it's the us versus them meaning it starts with salary negotiations. It is how cheaply can I buy a human resource to do the work that needs to be done? 
Meaning, I understand that there are financial limitations on what companies can do, but I think the, the secret here that many companies haven't maybe, maybe not caught on to is that money is not all that important these days. And in many cases, money doesn't even make the top 10. I think if you look across the board, it might be ranked number seven or eight. And I think the mistake or the opportunity that most companies have in that regard is let's figure out what else we can do that is a non-monetary value currency that we can provide to employees. Again, there's a total of 30 that companies can take a look at, but I think there is a lack of transparency and, and most companies don't understand what these 30s are. And they also frequently focus on symptoms versus causes. And then this whole thing gets very convoluted, very confusing, and companies end up spinning in circles not making any progress. So that was number one. What is it that employees want? Ask that question. And obviously, you would have to ask employees that question in some form. The second one that I would ask is, how can I create an exceptional employee experience for my employees? Now, the term experience economy was coined about 20 plus years ago. I think it was in 1998. Initially, it was intended to describe the relationship between businesses and consumers. But as it happens to be, all of us are consumers. And so what companies have done, companies like, like Google, like Starbucks, like Netflix and Amazon, they have spoiled us. They have spoiled us as a consumer. And that has bled over into the work environment. And today's employees come to work with an expectation that is quite different from what it was 20 years ago. And they expect an experience. So I frequently meet with um, HR decision makers, HR managers, directors, and when I tell them, what are you doing in order to create exceptional employee experience, I sometimes get the feedback and say, we're not running a theme park here. <laughs> so, so you can see how much they're off, off target. Is that a generational push? Uh, or has, has, has that been uh, driven by... Uh, millennials, because certainly from my experience, they're very much more into the whole concept. Yes, yes. having experience, you know, better experience. I think that's a very keen observation. I think it was initiated by the more recent generations, like Gen Zs, millennials. But I think the other generations, as far as I can tell, are quick in adopting those type of expectations. They weren't the ones who initially put it out but they see it's happening and they see the benefits of it in some areas. And they say, yeah, I want this as well. This is important, but they're probably not as vocal about it. Right. Okay. So if creating a good employee experience is one of the non-monetary rewards that uh, engages staff, um, then what does a good employee experience constitute? There are many moving parts, which is the reason why this is relatively complicated. Before I, answer, before I go into more detail to answer your question, I thought I'll just reference a couple of facts um, based on, on research that was done, what an employee experience actually delivers, because I think the motivation to create something, especially something that's not easy to create, needs to be there in the first place. There's a really excellent book by Jacob Morgan, and uh, the, the title of the book is The Employee Experience Advantage. 
So he has looked at companies that have provided exceptional employee experiences, and he found that the highest performing organizations, so really those that provide the best employee experience, see on average that those organizations have 20% higher productivity, they have 40% lower turnover, they see a, a profit per employee that is four times 4.3 times as high as their peers, and they have a 2.9 times more revenue per employee. Now, those are impressive numbers, but quite honestly, there's, I think, an even better comparison that he's also offering in his book, and that goes to stock market performance. And so he's looking at uh, these companies and say, if you would have invested $100,000 from 1-1-2012, to uh, 10-1-2016, so it's a 57-month period, um, you would have, meaning if you would have invested just in the stock market in general, let's call it the S&P 500 here in the US, um, your $100,000 would have grown to $169,000. It was a strong stock market uh, during that time. It's an annual return on investment of 1446 if you would have taken the entire $100,000 to put it only in the top performing companies when it comes to employee experience, your $100,000 would have grown to $304,000 with an annual return on investment of 42.33%. So I just wanted to throw that piece out up front because those numbers are so compelling, because the journey that companies have to go on in order to create exceptional employee experiences is not an easy one. It's actually completely changing around everything that has been done in the past. So, Marcus, there are five areas of focus. One is self-actualization. One is experiences. Then one I have entitled traditional, which is basically what HR has done all along. In that bucket, you find the monetary piece, the benefits, the awards, the recognition. And I normally don't focus too much on that because we're all very familiar with faults, what falls into that bucket. The fourth one is integration, which is work-life integration. And the fifth one is growth. And each of these five categories, as I call them, value currency categories, have six variables underneath. So there's a total of 30 variables that companies can influence in order to create an environment in which employees want to work. Do you know that Google is getting every year over a million unsolicited applications? Wow. Because Google is known as a work environment, meaning, yes, they have the ping pong tables, they have the free catered lunches, but they have so much more. They have created an environment in which people strive, where they get the training, the coaching that is needed and necessary, where they can self-actualize, where they can bring their own personal dreams and desires to work and act upon them. And I think that is viable for every company out there, maybe not to the scale that Google has done it, but to a scale that it can become a competitive advantage that you don't have the attrition numbers that you currently have, that you have employees that are engaged. Because my observation is, so far, it has always been an us versus them. And, and the only reasons why unions came about a long time ago is because employees didn't get what they wanted in the first place. 
And companies have more steered away from not needing unions, but they're still not there in really providing all the different things that can be provided to create an environment where people can really blossom, if, if I want to use that term. So you, you've defined what self-actualization is. Um, what do you mean by experiences then? Can you go into some yeah. more detail about that? Actually, let me give you a couple examples for, for each of them to Please. just to put a little, a little more flesh on the bone. So self-actualization, I have variables like influence, control, autonomy, purpose, inclusion, and self-realization. So it's, it's all basically, and we can talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and it might be a, a good example for, for your listeners to understand what I'm talking about, because everyone has seen that hierarchy of needs before. So that self-actualization under experiences, the manager is a huge, huge component of my experience. If I have a great manager, and even if my working conditions are not great, I might enjoy the work just because of the manager who's supporting me. What I have also put under experiences is having an experience of belonging. So diversity and inclusion is, are normally the two other terms that I mentioned alongside with belonging but I have actually put them in a different bucket. I think belonging is where the rubber meets the road. And surprisingly, there is not that much talk about belonging yet. Are you familiar with how in the United States, how high schools have proms at the end of their, their time? Yeah. And I, kids suffered. dress up and they hire limousines and they, they come and dance and, and have a great time. So let me give you an analogy that is using high school proms that talks about diversity, inclusion, and belonging. It is very short, but it really stuck with me when I heard it for the first time. So use a high school prom as a backdrop. Right. Diversity is everyone is invited to the party. Okay. I mean, every single student can show up, is invited, and has a ticket to, to get in, so to speak. Inclusion is being asked to dance. So there's somebody else who wants to dance with you. That's inclusion, meaning you now being asked to be an active part of what's happening. And then belonging, and this is really, again, this is the reason why I'm so excited about the belonging piece. Belonging is like dancing like nobody is watching. Feeling comfortable to bring your entire self to the party and really don't care about what others think, or more importantly, knowing that others appreciate that you being yourself. And if you take that and apply this to a corporate setting or any type of business setting, that's where you want to get to. If you have people that come to work and they dance like nobody is watching, it, <laughs> matching happens. Really, well, magic happens. This is really important because I think in many corporate cultures and many business cultures, introverts don't really get an opportunity to express themselves or they get shouted down. I was interviewing a fabulous lady yesterday and one of the, the patterns of behavior that she's found throughout her career is mm -hmm. she'll come up with an idea and it'll be glossed over. And then the next words out of someone else's mouth are expressing the same idea as hers, but they're a man. Mm -hmm. And they say, oh, that's a brilliant idea. As the father of three daughters, it really does get up my nose. Um, mm -hmm. That still exists. And looking at how 
really enlightened managers lead. I interviewed a fabulous chap, uh, Ian Dodds. I don't know if you've ever come across him. I don't think so. Ian is a specialist in inclusion. And he opened our podcast by just saying, I'm bisexual. Now, this is a man in his uh, early 70s. To be bisexual when he was growing up, it carried a huge stigma. But what was really fascinating was he came home one day and he overheard his parents grumbling about managers not listening. And he went back to work the following day and he was working in the worst plant ICI had worldwide. And he started talking to the workforce. And they were highly unionized. They had a communist party branch. It was incredibly low productivity. And it was all white. There was just conflict all the time. Anyway, long story short, within five years, it was the number one performing plant in ICI. And he spent the next 20, 30 years going around and turning around all these different plants. And what was fascinating was it started by listening to everybody and giving everybody a voice, and then bringing in diverse groups of people. So in Leicester, where they were, there was a a large Afro-Caribbean community, but next to no Afro-Caribbeans on the workforce. Um, So they started to recruit them, and the culture changed, and the unionization became less uh, stringent. And uh, he ended up becoming uh, great friends with the head of the union, who was a card-carrying member of the Communist Party, But what was really fascinating was it started with management listening to the workforce and giving them a voice. I think, Marcus, that is so important. I can give you an example from my own past where I think this played out beautifully. So part of my my roles in HR was focused on on benefits, on the health and well-being of the workforce. So when I took over a plant in Tennessee with 500 blue-collar manufacturing employees from my HR perspective, I noticed right away that their healthcare cost trends, meaning in the US, the companies pay for healthcare. It's not from the government. So every company has to focus out how to provide healthcare and healthcare is extremely expensive. So this was in the year 2000. And uh, I concluded in relatively quick order that improving the health and well-being of our employees was a much better approach than trying to shift cost or restricting access, which is what most companies around us were doing. And um, wellness programs, that they were, as they were labeled at that point in time, weren't that successful. I think another complicating factor was that Tennessee, where I'm still located, is consistently ranked one of the top three unhealthiest states in the United States because they have figured out here to fry everything that they eat. They even fry steaks of butter. And so (laughs) it was that, and and my population was, I think the average age was 47 years, blue-collar male. And so here I came, A, from a different country, different culture, and the first thing out of my mouth to my leadership team was, I think we need a wellness program. They laughed me out of the boardroom. They said, you got to be crazy. They never go for this. But it was, it became, yeah, no, it it was, it became one of the most successful programs. And this was within BAE Systems. We had, we were able to flatline healthcare costs for five years, zero increases for five years. For that unit of 500, we saved $7 million, which was huge. 
But the reason all of this was happening, and quite honestly, I have to say, I wasn't clear on why it was happening. I looked at it after the fact and realized why it happened. I actually walked out of my office into the plant, huge plant, 6,000 acres, 243 buildings and 500 people. So finding the people was the first challenge. <laughs> but, <laughs> That's um, an average of 2.2 2. 2 people per building. Right, right. It's Well, that particular plant was producing explosives. You don't want the buildings close to each other. And you need a lot of buildings in case one blows up accidentally. You got your 10,000 steps in then. <laughs> no, I certainly did. But I drove out to the buildings. I met with two, three people at a time in operating rooms and asked them. So I opened a dialogue and I said, okay, here's the dilemma that we're having. Here's an idea that I have. What do you think about that? Do you have a better way or can you make any recommendations? Then I had town halls where I had two, 300 people at once in there. And I said, Here's an idea. I talked to many of you individually. I pulled all the input together. Are you willing to participate in this? Because I can set up the framework, but I'm not the one who can make this succeed. Marcus, the engagement, the active participation in that program was throughout its life, 92 to 95%. And there were a few outliers that didn't want to, but quite honestly, I didn't chase them either because I, I honored their decision not wanting to be part of it. But the reason that we were able to move the needle so significantly is because I opened a dialogue, I heard them, then I implemented a program, and I basically got their buy-in. That, by the way, that's not even the end of the story. That program was so successful, BAE Systems in the U.S., so the entire enterprise of 45,000 employees, uh, heard about the program, came out, looked at it, and it took me two years of negotiating with our headquarters to say, all right, let's do this across the board, across all 600 locations for all 45,000 employees. Guess how much money we saved in the first year? $42 million. That is only because we listened to the employees. When you look at the uh, number of claims that were made against yeah. health insurance, did they drop as well? Because Oh, yeah. Meaning if there's a heart attack about to happen, the wellness program is not about to change that. Yeah. But what we have found is it's not the same group of 10% that have catastrophic claims every year. It's actually moving around quite a bit. And if you can eliminate health risk factors in the process you basically shrink the pool of high-risk employees. And I can say honestly, because I've been told so by my employees, I've saved lives in the process. I've been running screenings that people identified conditions that they had no idea they had that could have easily killed them. And what about productivity as a result of people catching stuff earlier? Through the roof. I have testimonials from, we have... At that point in time, we had a large group of mechanics that had to go in tight spaces, climbing up on roofs. And we were also very vigilant in asking them to provide testimonials because I wanted to share the success. And they, they came back saying, I'm more focused, I'm more agile, I'm more flexibility. We have more flexibility. So productivity was exceptional. And on many different levels, just it became their baby. It became something that they were proud of. They were telling their 
peers outside work, I got applications in from, from folks uh, in, the, in the area that said, I want to work for you because I heard you have free healthcare and a really cool program. <laughs> that was the single reason that they wanted to work for us. And so it, it had a ripple effect through the entire organization. It even positively impacted the relationship across the board with the employees. We had initially a couple of union threats. There was no talk about unions during that time because they felt we were taking care of them. Well, again, this is where Gallup's 12 questions research is very interesting. The one question of the 12 that most organizations ignore is, do you have a best friend at work? And Mm -hmm. it's probably the most important one because best friends don't let you blow yourself up, harm yourself, uh, do stupid things, and they stop you from performing acts of idiocy. And particularly where we are now with COVID, having an inclusive environment where people feel that they belong, there must be uh, indications there of how people are being more supportive versus the the old school traditional, uh, we're not here to um, provide a theme park. No, you're absolutely right. And and I think it has an immediate impact on, on the culture. And culture is one of these things. I think it was Peter Drucker who once said that uh, culture eats uh, strategy for breakfast. And, and I think what that indicates is culture, there's always a culture, but for companies to create an intentional culture that enables this type of having a feeling of belonging, feeling cared for, uh, that's all culture. My list of 30 variables in order to create an environment that employees want does not include the term culture because culture, in my eyes, is an umbrella term. It is something that describes the entirety of what's there and probably also the reasons why so many companies shy away from influencing culture because they don't even know how to address this beast because it has so many angles, so many different facets. But no, you, you're absolutely right. You do these type of things. And by the way, I'm, I'm talking about 30 variables, but most companies can focus on three to five, prioritize them, and they will have a substantial improvement over what they currently have. Can they you give just, an example? Yeah, so it, it really depends. What I'm using, what I'm recommending companies to do, so there's not a given set of, of three or five, um, whereby I can tell you which ones I think have the biggest impact in a minute. What I recommend companies do is to do a SWOT analysis, is to really look at those 30 variables and do a very quick, no more than spend an hour to sit down in front of a piece of paper, look at those 30 variables and say, where do I think we're strong? Where do I think we're weak? Where do we have threats and opportunities? And just do a quick assessment. Basically, take inventory of what you currently do in order to create an environment in which employees want to work. And then you do a quick assessment of where your threats and weaknesses are, and then you hone in into those. Ideally, that narrows down the list to anywhere from three to five, um, and you set yourself goals. What can I do within the next 90 days? That's another thing I've seen companies do really badly. Mm -hmm. They do those employee engagement surveys once a year. BA Systems used to do them. I'm not sure what they're doing now. And they have a set of 150 questions. I'm exaggerating slightly here, but it was a lot of questions. They look at the results, pull out their hair, hire a consultant, 
the consultant pulls out their hair and says, man, that's a lot. That's very complex. <laughs> then they have focus groups because they want to identify what did they really mean when they answered in such and such way to the answer. So easily nine months to a year pass. In the eyes of the employees, they've already written off this whole exercise because they haven't seen any action coming out of it. Yeah. And employee engagement surveys can easily hurt your engagement if you don't show immediate specific actions that's being A, communicated, and B, being taken. But I'm going, I'm going on, a, on a tangent here. I don't think you are, because I think it's really important that people actually understand that if you're asking people for their opinions, they are expecting you to take action off the back of it and quickly. Absolutely. And, uh, faff around and uh, delay and stall. The best company that I've seen doing it, I've worked for an IT software, well, SaaS startup on the, east, on the West Coast. They send out every day a single question to all employees, 200 employees, small organization, and they reported back at a minimum on a monthly basis during the all-hands meeting, here's what you've told us, here are the actions that we have taken already, here are the actions that we will take. The participation in that one question engagement survey, if you want to call it that, spot survey, was exceptional. And there was also a trend of repeating certain questions, let's say every three or four months, so that trends could be mapped out. And employee engagement was one of those trends that was always important. Uh, net promoter score questions were, or question was used quite frequently. But that type of, you ask a question, I'll give you a feedback, and then you tell me right away what actions you're going to take. I think that's what it takes today in order to make this work. Well, what it also takes is courage and vulnerability. Oh, yeah. And th that, again, if we have a, a leadership or management team that is brittle, their egos are fragile, or they're dictatorial, I suspect suggestions like this will go down like a lead balloon. So I, I did have another analogy, but I'm pretty sure no one wanted to hear that one. Um, <laughs> and if you're going to create a high degree of employee engagement, what are the qualities that you would look for if you're involved in hiring the leadership in the executive team? Oh, the quality in the individuals that lead yeah. the company. Yeah. I think that's a very interesting angle to look at because normally I think the question is being asked differently. The leadership is already there. How do you hire people that kind of fit into what we're trying to accomplish? But um, let, let me tell you, and I think that answers your question at a minimum indirectly. Let me tell you the five variables that I think are most important. And I believe if those five are characteristics in individuals, it, I think, would lead to a very desirable outcome. First of all, you have to have a capable manager. Now, let me, let me be very chrono-specific in, in saying that. Our CEO and chairman, uh, Aaron Ain, actually has made a statement very recently that says every employee deserves a great manager. Managers are integral to employee engagement and overall job satisfaction. The best, most talented people would rather have a bad job working for a great manager than a great job working for a bad manager. 
And the fact that he starts out by saying every employee deserves a great manager, I think many companies say that. But let me tell you what Kronos does in order to make this reality. We have a manager effectiveness index. And that manager effectiveness index basically provides a tool, and I'll tell you in a second what that is, that holds managers truly accountable. First of all, there is a definition of what a great manager looks like. Because sometimes you you hear companies saying, well, just be a good manager, and then off you go. (laughs) You You have to define what that is. Then you have to communicate what that is. Step number three is you need to give all of your employees the opportunity to evaluate every manager. By manager, I know the terminology in the UK is slightly different. I'm talking every person who is in charge of other people. That's, in my terminology, a manager. And you need to give, and Kronos does, uh, give every individual the opportunity twice a year to fill out a set of 19 questions that are basically being used to rate the manager, to say, on a scale from one to five, how much you agree with the statement. It is anonymous, obviously, but compensation and even continued employment is really at stake with the feedback that employees are providing. And I think that's the only way in order to make a system like this work. And then obviously the fourth step in the process is once you've seen the feedback, once you have given the manager the feedback, you give the support, the coaching, the training in order to allow managers to meet the expectations. If that doesn't happen on a repetitive basis, meaning you want to give them some room to fail, but if that happens on a repetitive level, sorry, then it might be good for a manager to leave the organization because he or she doesn't present a good match for the organization. So to build on this, I interviewed Tom Shodorf, who is the sales leader for Splunk, and he took mm-hmm. from 42 million to 1.2 billion in five years. And one of the criteria that he had was that managers had to have at least 80% of their sales team hit quota or they didn't get to go on the jolly. You know, they'd have the annual sales kickoff somewhere nice like Barbados or... Um, right, Ramos, right. And a uh, net result of that was that they had to work with everybody within their team. And what Google does, Google's Project Oxygen is fascinating. The number one condition that uh, defined whether or not a manager was good was uh, would people within the team regularly recommend... Uh, other people that they liked and cared about to join the team because of the manager. That's really indicative. And uh, what, what I see time and time again is organizations give no runway and no real tra- support transition uh, into management. You know, we did a survey last year and 43% of companies claimed that they had a good management training program, uh, yet only 13% of sales teams hit their quota last year. Um, And uh, only 6% of managers are actually fit for purpose in the sales survey that we did. Now, this is slightly depressing. Well, it's very depressing because (laughs) 94% are not. And a bad manager, if, if you think about the cost of a wrong hire in sales, in enterprise sales, it can cost you between 35 and 125 times salary when you take into account the lifetime value lost reputation damage, people who'll never do business with your company again, the cost of replacement, all of that stuff, turnover, you name it. Now, 
when you have a bad manager, they could easily muddy the waters for five to 10 reports. So if you think 35 to 125 times is painful, uh, you do the maths on that. You know, that yeah. could be anything up to uh, 1,250 times salary and then going further up the food chain. So let me just make this point. When only 3% of the global training budget is spent on management training and development, and most managers get zero coaching from their boss, then it may give you a clue as to why everything is shot to shit. What are your thoughts? <laughs> no, I, I, I fully agree. So let me jump. You know, we're still on, I'm still on the list of the five criteria, five okay. characteristics that I would want to see in, in the leadership team. But let me jump over to the last one. I otherwise would have mentioned, not in order of priority, just the way I have them in memory. So the growth bucket has, has a term, a variable in there that I call mentorship. And uh, it also has learning and development. But mentorship for me is a higher form of coaching. Coaching is I go to a training or my manager spends some time with me to relate some skills, abilities, knowledge, whatever it might be. The reason I like mentorship better and the reason why mentorship made it into the box and not coaching, mentorship feels like it's a bidirectional commitment. It is a commitment that the mentee has to the mentor and vice versa in order to help an individual to grow and to expand. And it's not limited to a particular skill or task that needs to be accomplished. And I think, I think everyone should have a mentor, a mentor that is personally committed to make you succeed. And it doesn't have to be the traditional model of more seasoned is, is, is mentoring the, the, the ones early on the career track. I've seen it many times done the other way around and it was really successful. I mentored um, what I would call Ivy League graduates that were high potential that could run circles around me. And I took great advantage of that by learning from them to learn how to be more agile, how to deal with, with large amounts of data quickly. Now, the initial setup was I mentor them, but I can tell you, I learned as much in the process as hopefully they learned in the process. Two things to pick up on there. Certainly, uh, that, what you define as mentorship, I would define as coaching. Um, okay. that, that's exactly what good coaching should be. And Excellent. it's a two-way value proposition uh, because both sides learn. Now, one of my former clients was uh, head of HR for Monsanto. And they had a real problem because they were having a brain drain with their senior chemists and senior scientists because they wanted the black leather seats and the nice car and they wanted to turn left on a plane. But these people weren't great when it came to man management and uh, the human side of things. So they came up with a, a, an alternative route to get those benefits of senior management and the status, which was they didn't have to manage anybody, but they had to take on five ment uh, mentees. Yeah. So the net result of that was they had this incredible transfer of knowledge from these highly experienced chemists, and they weren't leaving to go somewhere else for the money and the, uh, the perks, but they were staying. And net result of that was that they ended up with much, much more capable junior scientists moving up the chain of command. So again, that mentorship piece is really critical. And when we look at the impact of three to three and a half hours of what we would define as coaching, you'd define as mentorship, per salesperson per month, the average quota attainment is 105% of quota. If it's less 
than the three to three and a half hours. The average quota attainment is 40 to 60% of quota. And yeah. um, I mean, if you, t- if anyone tells me I don't have time to coach because I'm too busy putting out fires, um, then you, what you really need is a good slap around the head and someone to yell right into your face. The reason you are not, you don't have time for coaching is you're not bloody well coaching. The thing that flabbergasts me is that the idea that the transition to go from a producer to a manager is just a tap on the shoulder and a piece of paper saying you are one is crazy. They're totally different skill sets. It's really difficult. And you have to actually want to see other people succeed. You have to want other people to develop or else you are going to be an awful manager. You might be a dictator. I think, Marcus, it's... uh... It's also known as the Peter Principle. I'm not sure if you know that yeah. that piece of terminology. Absolutely. But yes, people are being promoted to the point of incompetence. And in many areas, that's unfortunately still the way it's working. And then you end up exactly with the, with that type of scenario. If you put, and, and I pride myself of having taken that approach initially in the military and later on in corporate settings, putting employees at the center of what you do And it pays a multiple in regard to engagement, productivity, and everything else that you want to get out of employees. But um, it is hard if the framework hasn't been laid to enable that, meaning you can do some of it as an individual. But if the framework that the company has in place is not that of support, um, I think people burn out, even if they have the right intentions, if they want to train and coach and do all these things, if they are the only person doing it or a few, one of few, that's why people end up leaving. And, and I'm exceptionally grateful, I have to say, working for an organization now that has a framework that enables these type of relationships to be built and, and trainings to occur and it makes a world of a difference. And, and the startups I've worked for previously didn't have that. It was just high pressure performance, get new customers in the door. I was the VP of customer success for two companies. And what sales was getting into the door, they knew they were making promises they couldn't keep. And then I had to take them over and talk them off the ledge afterwards. It's just no fun. Well, I, I've interviewed a guy today, Matt Edmondson. He runs a number of e-commerce companies. And this speaks to how empowering people to make the right choice in order to serve the customer also creates the right kind of environment for employees to feel fully engaged. So his rule of thumb in the customer service desk is treat the customer as you would want to be treated if you were them in their situation. So uh, one of his guys on customer service, Greg, received a call from an irate customer saying, where's my parcel? Where's my parcel? And Greg looks on the system and he had ordered a bunch of goodies for uh, his wife. And he hadn't noticed that there was an expedited um, delivery option. And he was hoping they were going to arrive in time for her birthday because he left it late. Who hasn't done that? Anyway, so Greg said, look, What I'm going to do is I'm going to make sure I'm going to go to the warehouse myself, repack the order, and I'm going to send it to you um, by uh, super fast delivery. Now, bear in mind, it was being delivered by courier on a Saturday morning before nine o'clock. 
that's an expensive piece of packaging. Anyway, Greg did that. Uh, he took an extra box of chocolates. Uh, he got a card, a birthday card. He wrapped all the presents as well, so the guy didn't have to do that. Uh, he got a card, got everyone in the company to sign it, uh, including the MD. And the MD didn't know about this. And he sent it off. It arrived in time. And on Monday morning, I'm, I'm welling up actually telling the story. It's such a lovely one. And on the Monday morning, there's this a customer phoning up. I need to speak to the managing director. Put me through now. So he says, yeah, how can I help? And uh, he then recounts his story. Now, it cost £27 to repackage and uh, deliver that package. But this guy has been a customer now for years. He's told everybody, and he will not go anywhere else. And that's what employee engagement does. It creates a sense that people are valued and respected. And engaged employees mean happy customers. Marcus, I think the way I would summarize that piece, and that's really looking at it at a very high level, there are two things that companies need to be concerned about. One is to build a foundation in which employees can operate like that, where they feel empowered, where they feel heard, where they feel they're part of what's going on. And then the second piece is just the mechanics. And the mechanics is really how do I perform my job? Or if you make it specific to sales, what sales techniques am I using? Which tools do I have at my disposal? But without the foundation, None of that is happening because people feel insecure. They feel stressed out. They feel, I don't know what the expectations are. I don't know if I can do this or that. And so the foundation is what we mostly overlook and we jump immediately to the mechanics. That, but the mechanics are kind of the icing on the cake versus what truly enables it. An analogy that I, that I love to use for that is if you build a house, and the most important part of the house is the foundation. If the foundation is half an inch off on the basement, it will be about three inches off once you get to the second floor. So it's basically a compounding effect of something being wrong that is something you have to deal with on a daily basis. I've worked for companies that had huge IT debt. And what they mean by that is they've developed a platform that is not scalable, that needs manual interactions, that is faulty and buggy to some degree. And we pay over and over and over for that lack of foundation because the customer calls you up in the middle of the night and says, you would not believe what just happened. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know these, these phone calls are coming because you know the foundation isn't there to support something to consistently do exactly what needs to happen or what the customer paid a lot of money for it to happen. And it's frustrating. Okay. Well, look, Michael, we've come to the top of the hour, and this has been an incredibly enlightening conversation. Thank you so much. And um, Tell me something. What, what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with? <laughs> a lot. <laughs> no, I would say I, I'm not a very patient person, and what I'm struggling, struggling with is talking with companies, which I do basically every day, all week long, for individuals resisting, kicking and screaming, not wanting to see the big picture, holding on to what they have been doing for the last 10, 15, 20 years, and, and running all kind of avoidance maneuvers in, in order to not having to discuss the strategy. So the people that I mostly talk to are HR. 
the HR function has come about because there were a lot of transactions that have to be dealt with. The paperwork associated to hiring and firing and having employees, you know, support your business. So I do understand that a lot of the focus is on these transactions. But technologies, uh, technology these days can take 80%, 90% of that away. And it could free up capacity to become strategic partners to the business. And as you remember earlier, I said, I always wanted to be seen as a profit center, not a cost center, meaning I wanted to contribute to the business in a way that I wasn't seen as just using up resources. And what really, what I'm struggling with is to sometimes getting through to people to come with me to a 50,000 foot level to look at it differently. Because I think in many cases, they're concerned. They are, they have fear because I'm not even sure they have the skill set to be a strategic supporter to the business. I think they are really good at being administrators, but the strategic skill set is different. There's an organization by the name of SHRM, which you might have heard of. It's the largest. I think they have some 300,000 members, HR professionals. And their CEO, Johnny C. Taylor, made a statement last year at a conference that I attended. And he said, I have talked over the last six months to probably 70% of the Fortune 500 companies. And I can tell you, those CEOs and CXOs are absolutely disappointed in what HR does for the business. And he was, he was going so far to say, I think they're getting ready to dissemble HR and split it up among departments that can be strategic in order to support the business. That's my frustration. Helping, meaning it's also something that energizes me. And I'm, I'm super excited every time I get somebody to the 30 or 40 or 50,000 foot level to say, do you see this? And they say, this is amazing. <laughs> but it is still the source of frustration. Okay. Do you want some gratuitous advice? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Take me to the wooden shed. <laughs> okay. In all of your dissatisfying relationships, the one constant is you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let me ask you this. How are you getting them to reach the conclusion themselves by applying simple, good old-fashioned selling skills of asking the right insightful questions and listening for the, what's not being said and over my shoulder, you can see my good old friend, Columbo, and presenting no threat to them so that they come up with the concept that maybe something needs to change. Yeah. They're responsible. Marcus, that is a really, really good point. And, and the part of what I do, I haven't really, really talked about. I'm part of discovery sessions with customers and so the way I use that time, sales is leading that, that discussion, but sales for the most part is not going to the strategic questions. I'm not pounding my counterpart with any strategics. I ask questions. So tell me, how do you link what you do in HR to what's important to the business? Really trying to be inquisitive to learn what they're struggling with. And that way they volunteering their, their pain points, their bottlenecks within the organization. And then I can come back and say, here's something I've seen working very well with other organizations and let them do the discovery for themselves. 
I think my frustration is not that I can't get there. My frustration is it's a lengthy process because they need time to get there. It's a runway that we have to go through. It's not that I cannot get there. It's just not going as fast as I like it to. <laughs> okay. Have you asked your raving fan clients why they're buying and why they bought in and then your hostiles as to why they didn't? Because typically in my experience, it's at the polar ends of um, your customer and prospect base that that information is most easy to glean. And also looking at shifting behaviors where people stop doing something or start doing something suddenly out of the blue. Um, Looking for those pinch points to give you the indicators as to where you might start those conversations or catalyze and accelerate the approach. There's a a large pool of data that we're using, we're looking at, we're analyzing. Even I speak at a lot of conferences, even having the water cooler discussion with individuals where you don't have any, any sales engagement going on just to learn what are their pain points, what's working, why are they changing, what are they changing. All of these are exceptionally valuable data points to, to build the big picture. I also write quite a bit content that I put out and, and get frequently pinged on, on LinkedIn and, and other places to say, tell me more, how do you do this? And so just maintaining a close connection to the grassroots, to the trenches of HR, and in many cases, CXOs, uh, because this has been elevated to the level of decision-making where now CXOs coming and say, tell me about this. They're more willing, they're more capable from a strategic perspective. The average HR person is, is less geared towards strategy. But yeah, we're using all of these data points in order to presented in a way that is non-threatening, that's informative, that's straight to the point, and, and really helps to build a comprehensive picture. I love creating models and models in, in, a, in a visually supported way. And I found that that is something that my audience can most easily connect to because we're, most of us are visual learners anyway. If you then break down a complex process and you make it something that they can within five seconds looking at it, they can extract the value. I see that frequently being the igniting point of the discussion. Very interesting. I I hope I haven't offended you. No, 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 absolutely not. Absolutely not. I'm always glad to go to the... I'm always glad to learn something new and to hear somebody else's perspective. So I have by no means all the answers. Quite quite the opposite, actually. Excellent. Okay. Tell me this, have you ever been blindsided in the course of one of these projects where you suddenly thought, no, this can't possibly be happening? <laughs> I've been blindsided early on in my career in a, in a significant way that's almost painful to talk about now, but I'll, I'll let you know. So after college, which in my, in my case was after the military, so it was in my late 20s, I thought I had a great idea in order to help organizations to sift through the tremendous amount of paper applications that they received. So I had one uh, one company I was working with in Germany. Every time they posted a job, they received 5,000 paper applications. Wow. (laughs) And so I I got to talk to them while I was still studying. And I said, I think I have an idea on how we can address that. I think we can use 
two components. One is um, OCR, optical character recognition, and the other one is artificial intelligence, none of which were my specialties because I'm an economist by trade, not a programmer. But I created a concept that they thought was very compelling, so they supported me, not financially, but they sent me all the applications. <laughs> so you got to do some free consulting. Yeah, I did some, I did some free consulting. It was exceptionally um, helpful to see really what this was all about. Now, I was seeking a partner. I used the Chamber of Commerce. I found an individual that I thought was a good match. We talked mostly, I would say exclusively about the technical aspects. We talked about the logistics. We talked about the going to market strategy. And what I failed to do, and, and that's a lesson that has helped me so many times since, what I failed to do is to learn about his motivation of why he wanted to be part of this. It was my brainchild. Uh, I was doing much of the work. I was probably working 16 plus hours every day because I was so energized by this. And once we got to a critical juncture of this project, really the point where we had to put some not insignificant amount of money on the table to move it forward. He said, I'm out. And that's the last thing I heard of him. <laughs> now, I couldn't move it forward by myself. I was devastated. I probably locked myself up for two days, not knowing what to do, but I had to call it off. I didn't have the resources. I didn't have the time, the capacity, and I course corrected. It was a blessing in disguise because what I didn't anticipate is that email that emails would come in as the carriers of resumes shortly thereafter, and my system would not have supported that. Also, optical character recognition was not as advanced as it needed to be, so I had some technical issues that I didn't really want to face. I was just pushing forward. But the fact that he dropped out and everything had to be shut down is a key learning in always find out what somebody's motivation is. And that is applicable in sales settings. This is applicable, applicable in employee settings. It's basically every human being you work with, learn about them, find out what makes them tick. And once you get to that, they basically work for you and in cases, many cases for free, if you look at volunteers. <laughs> If you had a golden ticket and you could whisper in the idiot Michael's ear age 23, what choice bit of advice and wisdom would you pass on? It, it sounds like you knew me at the age of 23. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was 23 once as well. <laughs> I, think I, the way I, would... I don't think I ever was. <laughs> I would put this twofold. I would say fail fast. I was focusing early on in my career more on succeeding than on failing. And failure was something I was trying to steer away from. I think failing fast is really what helps a lot to grow and to redirect. Meaning I spent 18 months, 16 to 18 hours every day to move this project forward that I just told you about. I probably could have gotten to the stage of failure within six. Meaning I could have shaved off a year, do something different if I would have failed fast and would have been willing to fail fast. The other piece of advice or the reason why I'm saying this Failing becomes harder once you get older because there's more at stake when you fail later in life than failing early in life. 
the military was still paying me 90% of my, my compensation for five years after I left the military. That's when I did these type of things. There was absolutely no risk for me financially. But mm-hmm. um, yes, I should have failed faster. The other piece is um, push yourself out of your comfort zone on a daily basis. Make it a routine. Do it every day because growth does not occur inside the comfort zone. Growth occurs only outside the comfort zone. While I was good with that in my 20s and in my 30s, I kind of went into a cruising mode in my 40s. (laughs) And and now looking back and say, that was a mistake. I should not have done that. Basically, the side effects of success kind of took over and enjoyed life. And I didn't continue to push myself out of the comfort zone on a daily basis. So those are the good two that I would tell myself. Excellent. Very good advice. What, what are you reading, watching, listening to that are uh, influencing you and you'd recommend to everybody? Yes, I think I would do recommend it to everyone. But keep in mind, my background has been a lot around health benefits, health and well-being. So I've done a lot of reading. Actually, one of my habits that I have established, I'm big on, on habits, Prior to the pandemic, I've been traveling on a weekly basis, and my goal was to read one book every trip that I make. And so with the pandemic, I've slowed down with reading a little bit because I just don't find enough time to read. But a few books that I've read that I would really recommend for folks to look at, and I know your audience is sales, but especially there, sales, I think, is a high-energy environment. It is something where you have to be on the top of your game. And there's one book that is called Spark. And Spark is the new science of exercise and the brain. And it basically, I'll give you one example. You can do 90 seconds of a particular movement or or exercise, and you can have the same energizing effect on your mental capabilities as drinking a cup of coffee. Now, I cannot afford drinking a cup of coffee once per hour. I probably would be dead at the end of the first day trying that. But doing, investing 90 seconds in moving in a way that engages large muscles and, and really promotes the flow of oxygen into the brain, that lasts you for 59 minutes of focus afterwards. I found that focusing on energy is more important than focusing on time. Being physically there but not mentally present doesn't buy you much. And so energy management is one of the big themes. So the book Spark speaks to that very effectively. There's a second one that kind of hits the same theme, and it's called Brain Rules. It's uh, 12 Principles of Surviving and Thriving at Work, Home, and School. It is absolutely insightful when you see taking school as an example, the way schools are set up from a not moving, sitting still, focusing, trying to learn at the same time is the very worst one environment that one can be in in order to learn something. And we always have to learn these days. We always have to have energy to focus. So those two books, I think, could revolutionize somebody's approach to being on the top of their game and also have energy for what comes outside work. Have you seen that wonderful video of that Japanese school? Um, and they built it in a circle, and it's got there three le- levels. So there are two levels of classroom uh-huh. and roof, and the kids can jump in and out of any classroom. And it's a, just an amazing learning environment. 
I'll dig it out for you. I'll send you a copy when I can. Yeah, that would be, no, I have not seen that, but uh, I think that would fit just very much into that topic. So those are two about about the brain and and energy. I have one or two about communications because being not a native speaker when it comes to the English language, language and communication is always on the top of my mind because it is very difficult. I think I have more of an awareness that not being a native speaker. And uh, I love the book by Chris Voss that's called Never Split the Difference. He was a top FBI hostage negotiator. And he has some really, really insightful points in his book. So that's one recommendation. And the other one is Story Brand by Donald Miller, which is more about never make yourself the hero, always be the guide. And that, I think, for many of us being customer or client-facing is a hard pill to swallow. But the book does a great job in, in explaining the benefits and giving you an idea of how to do it. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Uh, Michael, how can people get hold of you? I think the the best way, I'm in the US on East Coast time, but LinkedIn and my handle on LinkedIn is Puck, so P-U-C-K-N-U-S-A. So that's the easiest way to get a hold of me. My email address is michael.puck at chronos.com. Excellent. Michael Puck, thank you so much. Marcus, it has been a great pleasure. Thank you very much. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation and want to get in touch with Michael or myself, then please do. My email is marcuskauke at me.com or m-c-a-u-c-h-i at sandler.com. And if you think you'd be a good guest or you know someone who would be, then please get in touch. Either connect us on LinkedIn or via email. And in the meantime, please like comment, share, and subscribe. And until the next time, stay safe, happy selling. Bye-bye.